Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about Confucius, an excellent suggestion from Alex. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Now, when we're talking about Confucius, often contemporary people, especially contemporary Westerners, approach Confucius as if he were responsible for everything about China or as if Chinese culture is identical to Confucianism or, or as if you can any, just project various characteristics of China or the Chinese state or Chinese society onto Confucius. It's as if you were reading Plato on the assumption that everything Western is Platonist and that therefore every aspect of contemporary Western societies is in some way in Plato. If you did that, your reading of Plato would be atrocious. It would be a complete and utter shambles, right? You'd just be projecting your stereotypes about the West onto Plato. That's what we do. We project our stereotypes about the East and about China onto Confucius. So we're going to avoid that by engaging more specifically with the Chinese context. We're going to talk about you know, what was really going on in China and what was distinctive about the kind of society China had at the time that Confucius was living. We are not going to just uh, assume that Confucius's thought is identical with the uh, Chinese political thought in, say, the 20th century or the 19th century or the Manchu period or, or whatever nonsense you tend to hear from other people. All right. So Confucius is writing in the Warring States period. So this is a period of heavy decentralization. He is not writing during some heavily centralized Chinese dynasty that is uh, similar in some way to what you think of when you think of, say, a medieval or early modern Chinese dynasty. No, 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 no. This is not the Ming, okay? It's the Warring States period. He uh, dies about 50 years before Plato is born. So he predates Plato. Now, before the Warring States period, ancient Chinese states, pre-imperial Chinese states, uh, emphasized ancestor worship and the role of heaven. And often this was very transactional. You give some kind of sacrifice and in return the ancestor or or heaven uh, gives you something. So you perform religious rituals in the hopes of getting something in return. It points in Chinese history of thought, heaven is conceptualized as this transcendental source of authority, this thing that bestows authority or bestows blessings. Uh, At other points, it is understood as a kind of fickle or unpredictable thing, something that you can't control, that you can't really understand or make sense of. And those are kind of two different sides to the way heaven is presented. And that dialectic in in presenting heaven either as this authoritative thing or as this fickle, unpredictable thing that permeates a lot of the history of thought in China. Now, in the run-up to the Warring States period, there's uh, a state, the the Zhou state. Now, the Zhou state is not a full-fledged Chinese dynasty in the way that you might stereotypically think of it. It is a heavily... Uh, vassal-oriented state. It's based on ties. There's a ruling group, so a set of kind of dukes or lords around the emperor, but power is heavily exercised through patronage networks and through ties. 
So it is not as if there's a centralized emperor who is exercising absolute monarchical authority like a you know, Habesian sovereign. That is not what you have in the Zhou period. You have this very uh, decentralized, lords-driven thing. And the problem with the Zhou state is that it only gets more decentralized over time. And this is largely to do with issues with land. At the start, land is tied to holding particular offices. So if the land travels with the office, then the land is constantly, when you leave the office, then the emperor gains the opportunity to give the office to someone new, which means the emperor gets an opportunity to give the land to someone new and therefore binding that person to the emperor, right? So if the land is tied to the office, then through giving the office, you give the land and therefore whoever receives land also receives the office and therefore has a direct relationship to the one who bestows the office, right? What starts to happen is that the land starts to go on the basis of inheritance and it starts to go to people who don't hold offices. So this means within a relatively short span of time, even though everybody is in some way connected to somebody who used to hold an office and used to have this kind of close tie to the emperor, in point of fact, more and more land is in the hands of private individuals who are not in the ruling group who don't hold offices. And these ruling, uh, and this means that more and more of the economic and military power is outside the hands of the ruling group and therefore outside the influence of the emperor. So the emperor's power is weakened as the land goes into the hands of these private oligarchs who are not part of the state, not part of the, the ruling inner circle. Right. So as this happens, these warlords kind of start fighting with each other because they are no longer part of the same solidaristic band. And as this is happening, order is deteriorating, and that leads to a collapse in confidence in the ancestors, in heaven, in the political concepts that previously structured the society. So Confucius is coming into this situation where these old concepts are no longer performing their political function and the whole political order kind of has to be reinvented. So he's often positioned as some kind of traditionalist defending a traditional Chinese society that you can identify with some modern Chinese dynasty uh, like the, the Ming. And so people go, oh, you know, these are the traits of traditional Chinese society. And we assume that Confucius is espousing those traits and that he's defending some traditional order. That order does not exist at the time Confucius is writing. He's incredibly, incredibly old. Okay. Indeed, Confucius's work is going to be operationalized to create, justify, and defend many of those later imperial regimes. But Confucius himself never lives to see any of that, never sees a regime like that, never experiences that kind of imperial regime, has no knowledge of it. And so it's an appropriation of Confucius when his work is used to buttress those kinds of imperial dynasties, heavily centralized imperial dynasties, right? So what does Confucius come up with? What does he actually come up with? So for Confucius, the religious rituals, which were previously transactional, need to be reconceptualized. So instead of having this transactional relationship, you perform the rituals for their own sake and you perform them specifically with reverence. The attitude and the spirit with which you perform the rituals is more important than the actual performance, right? And by performing these rituals, you gain virtue. So they have a, a sort of theurgic value. These rituals cultivate virtue, which enables you to regulate desire. 
there are kind of five really critical virtues. Benevolence. Benevolence is interacting with others with a sense of what is good from their perspective. So it's a kind of balancing of the self with the other. Righteousness, which is steadfastness in the face of temptation. When you're an official, you might have an opportunity to take some, some money for yourself and siphon some money away, but righteousness will cause you to not do that. You'll be able to hold fast and resist corruption and greed. Ritual propriety, which is sticking to the rituals, both in your actions and in the spirit with which you perform those actions. And, and again, emphasizing reverence. Reverence is a big part of ritual propriety. Uh, wisdom, skillfully evaluating situations along with other people in their acts. So being able to distinguish which people are virtuous and which aren't, which people are reliable and which aren't. Being able to sort out what is the sensible thing to do, kind of similar to the concept of prudence in Western thought. Trustworthiness, being sincerely public-minded in a way that inspires the trust of others. So there's a different conception of loyalty. Loyalty gets brought up at a different point in a different way. Trustworthiness is about being so very clearly concerned with the public good that everybody trusts you to do what you think is right for the public. So no one suspects you of going off on your own and trying to advance your own private interest because you are so sincerely public-minded that nobody could imagine someone like you doing a thing like that. Right Now, if you have these virtues, then you are a gentleman. So the gentleman is a cultivated person made through this engagement with ritual, this relationship with ritual. It's possible to be a gentleman, even if you are not from an especially noble lineage, you don't have famous ancestors, you don't have the things which were traditional markers of being uh, picked by heaven to rule, right? Because of this change in the way that heaven is viewed. So whereas under the Zhou, the Zhou emperor has been picked by heaven and the Zhou ruling group has been picked by heaven by extension, uh, here heaven is associated with virtue itself. So by performing the rituals, you get virtue. And when you get virtue, it signals that in some way that virtue comes from heaven, right? Because since the virtues come out of ritual, they come out of an engagement with the spiritual. And therefore, when you get the virtues, that's the spiritual answering you. So if you think about our discussion of, say, theurgy and the way theurgy works, theurgy is inviting the divine to help you right? But it's not meant to be transactional. The divine isn't giving you some material good here. The divine is helping you to orient your character and to cultivate yourself. So your virtues are evidence of the divine participation in your cultivation. But that comes about through the engagement with ritual. So I see a similarity there between the way Confucius conceives of ritual and say Yamlicus much later on. Not to say that these things are identical or that there's influence, but a similarity there insofar as ritual is about virtue. Therefore, ritual is uh, about uh, and virtue is tied to the spiritual. You have this going in, in both directions. Now, Confucius himself, he comes from the lower end of the nobility, from the Shi, right? So he is not from, say, the family of a lord. He is not from the imperial family. So people in Confucius's class tend to serve lords. 
they are not themselves words. And so a lot of the language in Confucius's work is about uh, if you're in the service of some lord and there's a conflict between what your lord is asking you to do and what would be, say, good for your family or good for the public or good for the whole realm, what do you do? So the assumption here is that you're an official, you have some kind of political role, but you are in the service of a lord. And because you are in the service of a lord, there's a limit to how much power you actually concretely have. And this is in part because that's Confucius's class. And it's in part because this is the class of most of the people who Confucius is speaking to and who are really interested in Confucius's work. The people from the big noble families, they like bloodlines and heredity. They don't like you know, cultivating virtue as a basis for demonstrating that you have the mandate of heaven. Uh, they say, look, we have the mandate of heaven because we got in and then we come from the same families that are were descended from people who clearly had the mandate and therefore the mandate continues to run through our lines, right? Quite different. And in some ways, kind of similar to, you know, if you think about 18th century debates about the nobles and their hereditary ties versus, say, a bourgeoisie that considers itself meritorious, there are certain parallels there. So, the gentleman seeks after sagehood, but the gentleman is not a sage. So, the sage is higher than the gentleman. The sage has acquired what, say, the Platonists would call the higher virtues in the sense that the sage understands the process of knowledge acquisition itself and understands what the rituals are for, what their purpose is, and understands, therefore, uh, how to potentially change the rituals. So, the sage is a master of ritual in the sense that the sage is able to adjust rituals based on the situation and is not beholden to received rituals. But only a very small number of people make it to sage. You know, Confucius goes, I hope to meet a gentleman, but I have you know, no hope of meeting a sage. Sages are very rare. But the, there's a lot of importance to this concept of the sage because the sage, insofar as the sage revises ritual, this emphasizes that it's not a purely traditionalist account. This is not, uh, Confucius is not just married to a set of historical rituals that he wants to keep going in perpetuity in precisely the same form. For Confucius, the wisest person is able to change the rituals. The gentlemen don't make it quite that far. So the gentlemen are just acculturated to follow the rituals and the rituals, because they have been well designed by the sages, guide the gentleman to a good life. The gentleman doesn't develop the ability to uh, contribute create creatively to the formation of the, the rituals. But the gentleman, by practicing the rituals, still obtains a good character and becomes a good, reliable public official. In a way, it's kind of similar to Aristotle's habits. So with Aristotle's habits, you'd start by learning them. Then you come to understand why you learn them. And only then are you in position to potentially improve them. But only a tiny number of people really understand the meaning behind the rituals. Most other people uh, can only approach it with a kind of reverence, a kind of awareness of their sanctity and significance and a seriousness. And that's as far as the gentleman is really expected to go. The gentleman is expected to be reverent, but not necessarily uh, intellectual to the point of being able to reconstitute. 
Uh, there's also a lot of emphasis on filial piety, duty to one's parents, in part because of this need to discuss conflicting duties between clan or family and the state. So sometimes you will be in a situation where you have a lord who will ask you to do something which damages your family's interests, or you may have a member of your family who breaks the law. In these cases, sometimes the duty to the lord or the duty to the state will take precedence. That would be the loyalty. And at other points, filial piety to the duty to family, the duty to children, that will take precedence. So at different points, Confucius will emphasize one or the other, depending on what the right balance is to strike. But the emphasis, it seems to me, is not on one absolutely taking lexical priority, but of there needing to be a balance between the two. Uh, the last thing I want to say before we go to Alex is... Of course, the primary text that everybody reads when they do Confucius is the Analects. But since the 80s, the primacy of the Analects has been increasingly disputed. And a lot of historians of Chinese thought think that other texts are potentially at least just as good, if not better, for getting at what Confucius really has to say. That the Analects are to some degree a later text that reflects some of the concerns of people after Confucius rather than Confucius himself. And so in some ways, it's operationalizing Confucian thought for later purposes. And of course, Confucian thought does get operationalized for later purposes over and over and over again. Confucius is constantly invoked by different Chinese theorists in different situations to advance different goals depending on the context. So when you go through the history of, of Chinese thought, you'll find many appropriations of Confucius for many different ends. But the historians who are focused on reading Confucius from a history of thought standpoint want to know what Confucius himself was actually doing. And for that reason, there's been an increased emphasis on going beyond the Analects. Now, I could not have, say, Alex read everything that everybody's thinking about in addition to the Analects. So I gave him a couple pieces of secondary stuff to remind himself, remind him that there's more going on than just this. And we'll conduct our conversation on that basis. And of course, if you follow us on Patreon. We put a little reading list in that clues you into some of what informs the episodes. So with all that said, uh, as you were reading through Confucius, Alex, uh, what struck you as interesting or, or maybe a little convoluted? Um, maybe I'll take issue with what you said about the gentleman versus the sage, but mm. just another question um, Yeah, about how gendered the concept of the gentleman is. I mean, because he seems quite progressive, maybe to use a modern word, but do you think these qualities could apply to just people or is it definitely like a male thing? Well, I think that uh, generally the emphasis in this period is going to be on men. A Chinese society was not very gender progressive in antiquity. Uh, so, yeah, we're mainly talking about men here. Of course, it's possible to apply these things differently. And one of the things that is interesting about Confucius is insofar as the rituals can be changed by sages, it becomes possible to update the rituals on the basis of conditions. So I do not think it would be anti-Confucian to include women as gentlemen at some later stage on the basis that conditions have changed. And I think... Uh, you know, for that reason, a lot of the time when people are reading Confucius as very conservative, they are 
discounting the degree to which the sages are free to revise the rituals as, as conditions change and conditions allow it. Uh, and for, for Confucius, you can never go through a door to a new room without having come out of the room that you're in. And so it's, it's not possible to change everything all at once as if from outside, as if from external to the existing set of customs. You have to engage with the existing set of rituals, right? So you could not just go all at once from the society that exists in the Zhou to a totally uh, you know, gender progressive society. That would be something that would have to occur in stages in reaction to developing conditions. I'm not saying that Confucius himself would have had a view about uh, specifically changing the position of women in Chinese society, only that a Confucian perspective is potentially consistent with reforming the rituals in that way. Yeah. You can say a lot about updating the rituals, but I mean, have you heard of the Analects for Women? I think it came later in the Middle Ages. I don't know if it's the same kind of wisdom teachings or just about social roles. I haven't looked at it, but yeah. It'd be interesting yeah. to come back to the Analects with, with more of Confucianism or its opponents, and I'm sure we could maybe do that. But yeah, Of course, you know, something like the Analects for Women that com coming out of the Middle Ages is going to be an attempt to apply this advice uh, in a different way to, to women. And that kind of reflects you know, some of the ideas that we see also in the West in the period of, say, Mary Wollstonecraft, where the idea is that uh, the virtues uh, have to be practiced in different ways depending on uh, the sex of the person practicing them, but that virtue is something which women need to learn. And of course, once you concede that women need to learn virtue, that opens the door to other changes, because if women need the virtues, then women may also need access to the education or to the conditions that are necessary for virtue. And if you're going to say that women need virtue, but they don't need access to the conditions necessary for virtue, you seem to be in a strained position. So often, uh, women's liberation begins with the idea that women also need to have virtue, even if it's of a different kind. And then that opens the door to demanding that women need education. And then once women get education, then it becomes possible to demand other things. Yeah, I mean, there is an analect that says it's harder to develop virtue if you're a poor person. So there's at least, you know, acceptance that, yeah, kind of on the luck of your, your station. But anyway, um, about the gentleman, because... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it seemed like you were saying they can't update the ritual, but they can revere it and they can inspire others to do that. But I think there's a few, quite a few passages that say the gentleman needs to balance the kind of morality side of things and the, the reverence and the uprightness with the craftiness and the expediency. I mean, there's an analect that's often interpreted as actually saying that, um, well, it's basically someone... I think a lord, their lord was killed by a duke and one of the people serving that lord committed suicide. The other person went on to serve the duke that killed their lord and uh, became his prime minister. Confucius celebrates him basically as someone who instilled virtue for generations, right? Uh, and he said, if he just had his throat cut like a common person, how would he be able to cause all this good? So I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. Yeah, the... Uh the, the gentleman still serves as a public official and so still needs to have a lot of virtue and a lot of ability. And a lot of this has to do with balancing different concerns. So you, you see in Confucius, for instance, this emphasis on a balance between filial piety and loyalty. You see uh, balances between, say, uh, uh, you know, righteousness and 
some of the other concerns that compete with that. So there's a lot of, of balancing virtues. And that's all stuff that gentlemen need to be able to do. So the gentleman needs all of the, the political skills. But if you think back to, say, our Michael Sellos episode, those kind of political virtues are still not that high up the virtue ladder. So to go further up beyond that, to be able to intellectualize about the process of virtue acquisition itself and to refine the way that the virtues are learned for oneself and for others, that would go beyond that. So I don't want to say that the gentleman is just someone who follows the rituals without virtue because the gentleman has to have reverence for one and the gentleman has to be able to actually possess the benevolence, the righteousness, the ritual propriety, the wisdom, the trustworthiness, the balance of filial piety and loyalty. The gentleman needs to have all of that, but the gentleman doesn't need to understand the process by which all of that is acquired to the same degree as the sage. The sage has to understand how someone becomes benevolent or righteous or uh, ritual pious or, or wise or trustworthy. And because the sage doesn't just have the virtues, but understands on a meta level how the virtues are acquired, the sage then is able to revise the rituals, which no one else can do. In much the same way, the theurgic virtue is the highest for Iamblichus because being able to understand what rituals are necessary to orient people toward the good is the most difficult thing to do. Yeah, but there's quite a few analects that say if you copy what I teach, but you haven't attained to it or you overcopy it or all sorts of things, then you haven't understood it. So how could a gentleman acquire the virtues without understanding the basis, you know, the practically what to do? Well, that, that they do understand practically what to do, but they don't understand the meta of how to get themselves to a point where they know what to do. Right? So it's one thing to understand, okay, I'm in a particular political situation. I have to manage that situation in a wise way, right? And, and to get it right and to make the right judgments. It's another thing to understand how you yourself got to the point where you were able to have the quality of wisdom. And, you know, further to be able to revise the norms and the cultural practices and the traditions of the society so that other people can acquire the wisdom that you have. I just thought, cause you, right? you need to look at your errors and, and yeah. So, Oh yeah. All, all of that's going to be there. It's the sage only has just a little bit more. It's a lot of, a lot of it is in the gentleman, but the sage has to be able to revise the, the fundamental cultural rites and rituals. So the sage has to have a meta understanding, a kind of philosophical understanding that goes beyond the kind of practical ethics or practical wisdom of the gentleman. So what do you think about the concept of the golden mean, you could call it, which apparently isn't what Confucius himself said. It, maybe it came slightly afterwards, but obviously there's a lot of balancing. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, th there's a tendency to kind of try to change this or th there are certain resemblances between Confucius's thought and some Western thinkers. And to a degree, I think you can be syncretic and, and bring things together. But there is sometimes a tendency to make the further claim that these thinkers were identical or that they are all responding to some common source of wisdom with some kind of common language. And I think that that goes too far. 
there are some similarities. There is, uh, you know, down the line, some level of interaction. But uh, it is not that all of this stuff has some kind of common source or all is precisely the same theory. There are differences. In particular, you know, when Confucius is talking about gentlemen and talking about a kind of middle class, it's an argument from the point of view of a middle class and an argument that a middle class, because it has virtue, it has merit and therefore should have more of a public profile and more access to public office, right? So that has a kind of class character to it, a kind of middle class class character, a, a theory for the officials, for the bureaucrats that is different from, say, a Platonist theory, which is being written by aristocrats for aristocrats. It's being written by and for the people who have a lot of land and don't have to work. So someone in, say, Plato's position is not chasing after these kinds of jobs, doesn't need to chase after these kinds of jobs. Whereas someone who is in this class, it is quite a significant part of, of, of life to go from the service of one noble to another. That is the, the role. Someone in Plato's class can do more or less whatever they want, apart from when it's a time of war and they have to fight the phalanx. And then if, if the supposedly benevolence, so that kind of selflessness and, yeah, to dumb it down, if you can't compromise that and still remain a gentleman, then is it good for you to just abandon service of your lord and kind of kind of do what maybe Confucius did or at least praises when he talks about, you know, lowly commoners who have chose to kind of hide when the Tao or the way of righteousness is not so present in the world. So you kind of withdraw. Yeah. So one of the things that is, is difficult here is that if Confucius is right, then Confucius has all of the qualities for ruling, right? So then, but Confucius isn't ruling. Confucius doesn't rule. Indeed, as Confucius ages, he withdraws from trying to do politics. So how do you make sense of that? Well, for one, it means that heaven doesn't just automatically politically empower whoever has the virtues. Heaven has to be a little fickle. So this contributes to the idea that heaven doesn't just give you whatever it is that it makes sense for heaven to give you. Hmm. That's number one. Number two, because Confucius doesn't have this profile, there needs to be some kind of explanation for it because otherwise, it's a big problem for the theory. There's got to be an explanation. And so it tends to come back to, well, Confucius has tried to serve under these people, but these people that he tries to serve under lack the virtue to benefit from his service and ultimately uh, rule in such a way that he cannot in good conscience serve under them. So there's an emphasis in Confucius's teachings on resigning when you're being put in a situation where you can't do what is right, when you can't service the public good. Indeed, it's consistent with being a trustworthy public official that you would resign in a situation where being public-minded was inconsistent with continuing to follow your Lord. So, the virtues are set up in such a way that a gentleman can withdraw. Now, this creates a current. So, there is, of course, trying to be an official, which is what a lot of this is about. But then there's also this possibility of withdrawing because the context doesn't allow for a, a virtuous person to serve as an official in a way that's consistent with their virtue. And so this other strand of withdrawal from society 
I think, spills out into a lot of other Chinese traditions. And there is often a, a antagonism in Chinese political thought between playing by the rules, demonstrating merit, getting the post that your merit entitles you to, and this dropout response. And you see that also in, in say, the Christian tradition, in the a difference between, say, the, the Roman who becomes a bishop and the Roman who becomes a desert hermit. The tradition kind of makes way for both of these things. And it has to, because if it was just about service, then the virtue would start to get eroded. So to shore up the importance of the virtue, it must be said that you can't rule in a way which contradicts virtue because virtue has to bind you. But if you're going to say that virtue binds you in that way, then you have to have some kind of account of someone prioritizing virtue over service. Now, people will try to read these kinds of narratives. And I think they do this with Plato, too, to be fair. In, in a kind of one direction or another. So they'll try to say, oh, you know, Plato and Confucius are saying you have to go into public service and you've got to put yourself out there and do politics. And then there's another set of people who will go, no, what Plato and Confucius are saying is that you've got to withdraw from public life and not engage in public service. Well, really, what you're being told is much more complicated and balance oriented than this. It's there are occasions when you should serve a Lord and give advice. And there are occasions where you shouldn't do that, where it's a waste of time and your service will just cause you to participate in fell deeds. And part of being wise is skillfully evaluating those situations, skillfully evaluating what kind of person is your Lord? Is your Lord the kind of person you can serve? Should you go somewhere else? And in a lot of, of Chinese stories and narratives, you'll have tales of people moving from one Lord to another. For instance, in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, there's all these moments where some lord will, will defect to a different lord on the basis that this lord is more virtuous or more honorable or I can do better service under this lord. Uh, the Romance, of course, is written much later, but it draws on this Confucian theme of uh, certain lords being uh, desirable to serve under because their virtue is so manifest and so obvious and so clear. Uh, some people read the romance as a kind of tension between a Confucian and legalist strand where you have, say, Zhao Zhao, Zhao Zhao, one of the generals is, is very committed to the law and he'll always enforce the law consistently even when it applies to himself. Uh, and then you have Liu Bei who is very manifestly virtuous and follows all of the rituals and customs with a spirit of reverence and he's the more Confucian figure and Zhao Zhao is the more legalist figure. It's one of the ways you can read the romance. Uh, but yeah. This emphasis on following a Lord who will enable you to contribute positively. If that's an option, if that's available, then that's preferred. But if it's not, then there has to be some other path because Confucius ends up on that other path. And what he does has to be okay or there's a major problem in the theory. Is it fair? Is it dumbing it down to just call it some kind of wordless quality? This, this gentleman of virtue or whatever, because he says that I teach all on a single thread in response to questions that say, oh, surely you told us to study here and study there and practice constantly day and night and keep applying. And he says, no, it's just one, one thread or, you know. Yeah, there are, there are moments in this that are, again, kind of similar to Plato and that there is a resistance to dogmatizing this. Uh, 
There's a resistance to saying, uh, you know, to following the letter of it. So in much the same way as you don't just follow the letter of the rituals, you don't just conduct the rituals exactly, precisely, correctly. You have to do it with reverence. You have to do it with a particular spirit. In much the same way, you don't just follow the advice that Confucius gives you literally to the letter verbatim. What you do is you get at the more fundamental advice which you then have to apply in a context-sensitive way, right? That's why there is this possibility of the sage who revises the rituals, because the rituals cannot be correct forever and never in need of change. The rituals will sometimes have to be changed, but you have to be have a lot of, of very difficult-to-acquire qualities to be in position to change the rituals. And you have to earn that on this account. In much the same way for, for Plato, you don't get into the position where you can be a you know, proper philosopher king until you're 50. Between 35 and 50, you're just in uh, you know, minor roles, learning how things work. Uh, you know, between 30 and 35, you're engaged in you know, higher dialectical training. And it's only at 30 when you're separated off from the auxiliaries, the people who just do the fighting. So... You have to earn this right to change the rituals, but then you can change them. And the reason you can change them is that the rituals are not to be followed verbatim or to the letter. They're to be, it's, it's the purpose of them, the spirit of them that must be consistent. So in much the same way, you need to have benevolence, righteousness, ritual, propriety, wisdom, and trustworthiness. Confucius can give you a situation in which he can illustrate that you probably ought to do something which accords with one of those things. But if you go through the Analects and you just read these as a series of commandments, as a series of things that you're supposed to do, then you totally misunderstand it. The point is to understand the principle behind why you act in these ways and to follow the principle rather than the action to the letter of the rule. So if you acquire the quality that drives you to act in that way, then you'll be able to apply that quality situationally in other contexts that Confucius does not describe. Is the quality just the correct motivation, whatever correct means? Well, the quality is the virtue. Okay. So, you know, the benevolence or the righteousness. If you acquire the virtue, then you don't just do the specific things that Confucius says someone with the virtue would do. You also are able to apply the virtue in new situations, which is going to be context sensitive. It's not going to be something that can be laid down all straightforwardly from the start. Is it a weakness of the theory, though, that it can just seem like blind obedience in the sense that disciples who do seemingly the same thing, mourning the death of uh, another disciple too much, like Confucius mourned him too much, well, they're in error, but he's not. So he, he wailed too much. They gave him a too lavish funeral, but his is okay and theirs is not. And it's like, okay, the authority figure knows what's best. We'll, we'll defer to that. That's quite conservative. And then I was saying it's progressive. There's also when he talks about women as a, yeah, never mind. You can find the passage. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that what's going on there is if you know why you're doing what you're doing, then you're doing it for better reasons than someone who doesn't know why. So the sage knows why, understands why. And so that when the sage makes a mistake, the sage at least knows why they made a mistake. When the gentleman uh, makes a mistake, it may not be as clear. And certainly someone who is not a gentleman has no idea what they're doing and is just driven by desire all the time. That the gentleman has 
a kind of uh, you know, buttress against just following their desires. Uh, for the gentleman, this at minimum becomes a kind of just buttress against that, a sort of source of restraint. But if you get further up the ladder, then it confers more ability potentially. But yes, it, it part of the trouble is when you try to do something like this that's a bit dialectic, that involves applying different abstract concepts together, different abstract concepts that will conflict with each other, where the areas of conflict are the areas that are really interesting because that's where you have to make a, a judgment. When you're being told by two different principles to do two different things, ultimately you have to listen to one of them. Now, when you do that, you can think that that means that the principle that you listen to is just fundamentally more important, but it may have only been more important in that situation. And in a different situation, you'd follow a different principle. And I think this is really illustrated by the many discussions of filial piety and loyalty, where sometimes it's filial piety that wins and sometimes it's loyalty that wins. And it depends on the situation. And so because it depends on the situation, every time you enter a situation, you have to apply those concepts. And it's not going to be precisely the same. So there can't just be a set of rules that you follow. But people often want there to be a set of rules, especially people who are earlier on this path. And that's why Confucius gives you a set of rules. He gives you a set of rituals to rigorously follow. And the hope is that by continuing to follow the rituals, you will eventually come to understand them better. Now, you may not make it all the way to sage, but you'll understand them better to the point where you acquire these virtues. And then that enables you to be a public figure. Is the ritual then just a concept or... Could anyone claim, oh, I'm not following concepts, I'm just following the way and, yeah, the single thread. There's no Well, the rituals themselves will be very, very precisely prescribed. So when Confucius is describing a ritual, he's going to tell you exactly what to do. And it's very important that you follow it exactly to the letter, but in the right spirit. So it's, it's better to make a mistake while following the ritual in the right spirit than to get the ritual right, but be doing it instrumentally or just for status or just for uh, personal gain. But by following the ritual, you then gain a deeper understanding of it over time. Now, how deep that understanding goes is going to vary because sagehood is something that is only accessible to a few. But if you follow the rituals, you will gradually gain these traits that come out of following the rituals. And the reason the traits come out of following the rituals is that the rituals were all designed by sages, theoretically, who know how to get you to develop those virtues. So if the sage understands how to get you to become benevolent, for instance, the sage will design rituals that bring about that trait. And then the sage will instruct you to perform those rituals. And if you perform those rituals in the right way, with the right spirit, then you get the trait insofar as the sage was in fact wise and did design the ritual well. Now, you may get to a point where you're the sage, and then you may look at the rituals that you performed and go, well, I think that these could have been slightly better than they were. Or I think now that times have changed, we have to modify these rituals a bit so that they can produce the same result in a different context. See how it works? Yeah, and I can see how you'd be able to get it to work because he talks a lot that if you have what well, Ren so benevolent, very reciprocal or back and forth or you, you give it out, it'll come back to you. It, it, that's quite clear in the Adelaide. So it's assumed that 
the sage is going to be liked. Well, he says liked and hated. He's not just liked, right? He's hated by people who maybe don't follow the rituals. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so you'll be, benevolence will come back to you and people will give you the authority to change the, yeah. Yes, because if people agree that someone who has virtues has been marked by heaven as someone who should hold public office, then the display of the virtues is evidence in some way that you're someone who ought to be followed. So yeah, to go back to the romance, in the romance, Lu Bei's whole strategy for uh, becoming emperor of China is to display virtue all the time in the hopes that this will cause people who have been influenced by Confucius to think that he is someone that they ought to follow. And so he tries to create a virtuous circle where he surrounds himself with virtuous people. They all behave in a very obviously virtuous way. And this brings in more virtuous people and so on and so forth. I contrast Sao Sao, the legalist, views all of this as very sanctimonious, clearly hypocritical and clearly just a device for trying to get power. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think Confucius would have said, I mean, counterfactual, but yeah, would he say this is posturing or this is not virtuous just to do it for political power or even if you're trying to centralize, which is something Confucius tried to do in his lifetime? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say centralize. I would say that Confucius was trying to shore up the order, but I don't think Confucius would have necessarily uh, been thinking in terms of the forms of centralization that occur later on. So shoring up uh, the Zhou is different from trying to create what would become the Han. Uh, now, it's interesting you say that because I can disagree with you and say, but he tried, he was successful in at least getting different clans to disarm their city walls. And they actually started doing it. And he also averted. Uh, well, that's, that would be necessary for either project, right? <sighs> Wait, why the, why not centralization? Would it help to remove all your local laws? Well, th there needed to be some level of centralization relative to the Warring States period, even to get back to the glory days of the Zhou or to invent some kind of new order that's better than the Zhou, but is on that kind of vassalage model, right? And I think that you, to be fair, it's not a restorationist project. He's not just trying to restore the Zhou, but I do not think that that necessarily means he's trying to build something that would come to resemble the Han. I think what we have here is an attempt to make something new that isn't fully realized by Confucius or in Confucius's own time. We end up getting something new that is in some ways not something Confucius could have anticipated, but which is influenced by things that Confucius said. Okay, so he do he doesn't want the armies of the local viscounts to be more powerful than the central duke, but at the same time, he doesn't also want to get rid of the feudal order because you can't. That didn't come until later. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that you know, for one, the, the emphasis for Confucius is not on the military mainly; it's on the creation of this set of, of virtues and customs. And, of course, the Chinese states that are established, while they often draw on Confucian ideas to build up their legitimacy, they all rely on very large armies. Very, very large. They tend to be led by military leaders. So, I, I would not identify Confucius with the Chinese states that come after his death. I also would not identify him with the Zhou. So some people just identify him with traditionalism or with trying to revive or maintain the existing Chinese state. What 
he's proposing is an attempt to kind of rebuild the order. It is an attempt which does not obviously issue in either what went before or what came after. It's an unrealized project that is then uh, influential on other projects that are non-identical to it. But Confucius's own project is a kind of unrealized project. That's how I would put it. There are Confucianist projects that claim Confucian legacy to varying degrees that do get implemented, but those are not necessarily identical to Confucius's project in the context of the Warring States period. And so a lot of scholars, for instance, think that Confucius wanted, say, a, a larger number of smaller states with some option to, say, go and serve different lords rather than, say, one big imperial bureaucracy, because this language of going and serving different lords and moving from one lord to another, it wouldn't apply in an imperial bureaucracy of the kind that develops in later dynasties. Do you think maybe uh, ritual and music would be stifled in a huge central state? Confucius talks about different systems of, mu of music. Some of them are good, some of them are good and beautiful, and that's obviously better. Actually, some are just beautiful, that's it, and others are... Yeah, also good. Yeah, but yeah, I think I think there's some room for plurality in this account uh, for political plurality. That said, uh, there is still an emphasis on a united community on the set of rituals being uh, what commonly links all of these different states together. So even if, say, the Warring States period produces a number of different states rather than one state, those states could still be unified together by a common set of rituals or customs. And so even if there are many different lords, each with their own territory rather than one dynasty, those lords could all have a kind of shared commitment to a set of rituals, and that could cause them to behave in a more gentlemanly way with one another. At the very least, their officials could behave in a more gentlemanly way and perhaps influence them to stop causing so much trouble for the poor people of China who are constantly being uh, threatened with war violence from these nobles who are constantly crashing into each other. But would ritual apply to the way a tax collector, if you had them, knocks or, you know, goes door to door? Would it apply to mundane situations or is it just the big celebrations? I think mundane too. Oh, yes. Mundane, too, for sure. Every little thing, every little thing is in some way uh, ritualized. If you're following it, it's a way. If you really follow it, it's a way and it affects almost everything you do. It affects how you talk to people, the way that you interact with, say, uh, a member of your family, the dignity that you uh, treat them with, the, the uh, reverence, reverence in everything you do. Everything you do, there's a right way to do it, a particular way to do it. And this is something that uh, theorists from other traditions will react against, especially in the hands of later Confucians, it kind of ossifies and becomes a little bit too rigid. And so when it ossifies and becomes too rigid, then you have people who go, it's just so oppressive and so stifling to have to follow all these rules. And this is in part why you know the Zen tradition develops in China, this, this tradition of spontaneity, of not following any particular set of rules, of radically uh, 
uh, ignoring rules that uh, develops in part as a response to a particular understanding of Confucianism. But I, I don't want to identify Confucius himself with that level of rigidity because there's this emphasis on the sage modifying. Of course, it's very difficult for a sage to modify. And there's always this latent potential that people interpret this in a conservative way and overly dogmatize the rituals and stick to them too rigidly. I don't think that's Confucius's idea, but I do think that's a popular reading of this and a, a, a reading that, unfortunately, when you have a reading of a text that's very dominant, the theorist, I think, has to own in some way or uh, the legacy of the theorist has to own the fact that the text tended to be interpreted in that way. I don't think the Confu that Confucius himself wanted an incredibly stultifying, ossified set of rituals that overly bound everybody. Uh, but some people certainly experienced later Confucian thinking as stifling in that way. And that gave rise to other traditions. But when you're speaking of Buddhism and just Buddhist ideas of, you know, not attaching, however you do that, uh, and holding things lightly. So, for example, when Confucius says you worship the spirits, you show reverence, but you're also detached. Could sound quite similar, maybe. Yeah. So, on the one hand, if you are being reverent, that's uh, in some ways taking things very seriously. So... There are some Buddhist traditions which kind of vibe with, you know, treating every little thing as a kind of, of reverent gesture. And there are other Buddhist traditions that are more focused on spontaneity as, as a form of non-attachment. So I think there are types of Buddhism that are closer to this, but other types that are further away. And I think we notice that the Buddhist traditions that are most interested in spontaneity tend to develop in China in part to contradict this. Uh, but there are also certainly other Buddhist lines that are more akin to this. And I think that Confucius himself has an approach here that is more sensitive than some of the later versions. As is often the case, often a, a really interesting theorist who's had big, long historical relevance has had that relevance because their work can be interpreted in many different ways, because their work is is very dynamic and, and thoughtful. And Therefore, if you write off a theorist like this because you've narrowed them down into a, into a stereotype, oftentimes that's a stereotype based on some follower of that theorist who didn't really get what was so dynamic and so interesting about the work and hammered it down into some kind of base schematic thing, which you always want to try to avoid doing. And anytime you're engaging with somebody else's work, there's always a temptation to try to hammer, the, hammer it into something that you can just file away in your brain as that's this person's view. Mm. Yeah, maybe I want to hammer away this comparison with Northern or Mahayana Buddhism. Yeah, outwardly quite engaged in the world, inwardly quite renounced as in not, not, yeah, not concerned with maybe, which would sound yeah, yeah, heretical. Yeah, I think the kind of, you know, the, the mainstream Mahayana tradition has some similarities insofar as it's more engaged than uh, it, with the world than uh, Theravada. And I think that's part of why the Mahayana was competitive. It had to be similar enough in some respects to Confucianism to compete in China. Uh, it, and so it had to be somewhat compatible with a kind of more practical orientation than maybe uh, Buddhism in other places. But of course, the Zen tradition also develops in part uh, out of trying to contradict a lot of it. So I think you get both the versions of Buddhism that are closest to Confucianism and the versions that are furthest away. 
in China. And of course, don't forget Taoism. Taoism with just kind of letting things go. Well, I don't... I mean, is... The only thing I saw to compare them, don't know much, is the Taoist way more nature and then Confucius is more culture? Is that oversimplifying it again? Is that a good way to start comparing them or... Well, so ritual is very much about kind of planning how you're going to do things, right? So a ritual is designed to have a particular effect. That's why you need theurgic virtue, right? To design rituals for people. So it's very conceived. So if you create a set of customs or norms, traditions to get people to develop in a particular way, you're really trying to plot out the culture. So a sage is really trying to plan the culture, is trying to make a particular kind of culture come about by really, in a very precise way, prescribing specific forms of behavior. In contrast, the, the uh, Lao Tzu, the Taoist guy, his argument is uh, that you don't need to make any kind of intervention at all, that people are naturally uh, inclined to behave as they ought to behave more or less, and that you should just not get involved. So uh, the Taoist position is really, really different. And Taoism, of course, interacts with Buddhism and Zen comes out of an interaction between Buddhism and Taoism. So you get this, this uh, you know, totally opposite view, which is you don't need to be messing about with, with cultural norms at all. You don't need to regulate the culture at all. Everything will just work itself out if you just stay out of it and you don't muck about in all of it. Uh, uh, when we're talking about cultural norms, is it good to keep them or talk about faith and learning and teaching. I'm just trying to link it to a couple of analects where Confucius talks about political priorities. Um, so one of them, he says, I think you can get rid of weapons first, then food and then faith. You can't get rid of faith because without faith, the state won't stand. But then in a different analect, maybe something quite different. Uh, we're talking about what you should start with instead of get rid of. You should start with population, then food, then riches, and then teaching. And if teaching is similar to faith, then here it comes last, but in the other one it came first. So, mm, Yeah. Well, if, if you have a regime that is built on some set of legitimation narratives, if you take those narratives away, then the regime doesn't last. But when you start with people you often have very simple and unsophisticated stories about who's in charge. And as you get to larger and larger groups of people and you're asking people to obey people they don't know or don't have a personal relationship with, it then becomes necessary to concoct bigger stories, right? So once you have a large society, then legitimacy is important for maintaining order. Uh, and if you lose legitimacy, if you lose faith, uh, then things tend to go south very quickly. But if you're starting off with people you don't need a whole lot of legitimation narrative in the beginning. And this is why I think a lot of people have a certain nostalgia for primitive villages where everybody knows everybody, because those are villages where nobody has to tell any stories, that nobody has to tell any lies about why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, but very quickly, as soon as you get even to a modest size, and I think people don't realize how small this size is, as soon as there's a shaman in the village, now you're in the realm of telling stories. As soon as you've got a shaman, but why? Because surely one in every so many people would have that, you know, attraction to be that person. They may not be selected, but, you know. Well, the, the shaman is someone who doesn't go out and, and, and collect food because the shaman sits in the village and, and uh, you know, 
conceives of and carries out rituals. So the shaman is already in the category of trying to substantiate the society. And I think that people don't realize how quickly you need something like a shaman. It happens very fast. And it's not even just purely on the basis of, oh, you've reached a size where not everybody knows everybody. Uh, A shaman helps you even when you are just dealing with a a bit of a large tribe, large clan, even, even something pretty small. I mean, if you're if your family had a shaman attached to it, you know, that's kind of like what the family therapist is in modern society, isn't it? You know, the, the person who tells you how to treat one another so that you'll get along and and be happier and become better people. Yeah, you know, the therapist is, is the shaman for the family. So even at that kind of size, you benefit from having somebody who tells you stories about how you ought to behave and why. Is it very psychological, though, until until you get to the. Yeah, just the stages where you question it and then it's more about moral learning. But yeah, just the fact that you have this technology of ritual to make you feel good. Is it just about pleasure, basically? The music isn't... Well, it's, it's, it's about being able to perform your role. Confucius is trying to prepare people who are good public officials. So they have to be able to perform this public role and they need a certain set of traits or characteristics on Confucius's view to do that. So... You know, similarly, if you're arguing that citizens need to be able to do something in a democracy or in any kind of state, whatever it is that you think that your citizens need to do or your public officials need to do, you're going to then need to give them those qualities, traits, abilities, capabilities. And that's going to require some further thinking about what is the process by which people acquire those things and what do you have to give people so that it's possible. Now, if you approach it from the Lao Tzu direction, then you don't have to do anything because people are fine just as they are, and they don't need any specific set of traits that you have to nurture in them. But if you do think that people need certain capabilities that they might or might not have, then you have to structure the society in such a way that they end up with them. And the more demanding the set of things you think people need to do, and the harder it is that you think uh, it is for them to get those traits, the more you're going to have to give them. Right now, in a society where you make very limited demands on people, where you say, ah, you know, you can be a citizen as long as you can row a trireme or ah, you can be a citizen as long as you you know, show up and vote once in a while, then you don't need to have all of this other stuff to be able to perform the duties of citizenship. And then that leads to a reduction in the sophistication of your uh, the, the kind of support you provide to your system. To your citizens. If you need virtuous people, then you provide a lot of support to make those virtues happen. If you just need people to, you know, fight in the army and show up to vote, then you don't need a whole lot from them. So you don't have to give them all of these other things. And so oftentimes in ancient societies that are emphasizing virtue, you'll have a tiny number of people who have a very elite background, right? In our societies where we're not emphasizing virtue, you can have a much larger citizen pool because you're not asking as much from people. And you're closer to the position of someone like Lao Tzu, who thinks that our natures are more or less okay. And if you just leave people alone, they'll manage their own affairs just fine. They'll perform their roles and functions just fine because their roles and functions come out of nature and not out of a scheme. Right? The laissez-faire aspect to Lao Tzu. Even though we have in the Analects people who are perfectly virtuous in non-virtuous times and they're not of any good station, they're just peasants or, you know, 
Legend, yeah. yeah, and this is this is always the curious thing. So if you have a society which doesn't have the rituals, how do you get virtuous people? And it seems Plato similarly argues that even in a bad society, you know, it couldn't be the case that no virtuous person would, would come about. It could still happen somehow you know, through a confluence of events that some virtuous person could come about. It seems like the arranging of the society is about trying to make this more regular and more consistent rather than about bringing it in to being versus not. So if virtue is not necessary, if uh, the, the customs and rituals are not necessary to bring virtuous people into being full stop, but to increase the number of virtuous people, to increase the availability, to increase the spread of virtue throughout the society, then it's not as, as difficult a thing to reconcile as the view that say, you know, uh, oh, you need this stuff for any virtue to happen. Yeah. So... Yeah, we are at just about an hour. Alex gave me the thumbs up, which I take to mean that we are at about an hour. And sure enough, we are. We are. So we're going to wrap up there for now. Uh, this is a fun one. I, I, I like doing Confucius. I, I think he's a really interesting guy. So thanks for picking it, Alex. And I look forward to doing another one with you before too long. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. and Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.